going to have you go to four Gospels this morning. So if you don't even know the books of the Bible, and okay, that's not uh, to shame you. That's just to say we're going to assist. We're going to go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. First four books of the New Testament. What I'm going to do is that I'm going to read portions of the so-called triumphal entry, but then I'm going to I'm going to come back and read Mark's account because that's what we're working off of this morning. And my my intention in doing this, among other things, is to help you be aware of the the special kinds of the the literary uh, style of each gospel writer and how that you can see that the gospels are not just wooden biographies of Jesus. No. And how each gospel account varies. Critics of the Bible like to swoop in on these variations and create problems which are not there. And that these accounts, no matter what it is in the Gospels, that these accounts harmonize and fit together. All right, I'm going to begin with the Matthew account. I will not read all of Matthew accounts, so if you're, um, I hope that won't be distracting to you. But uh, what I do want to call out, call your attention to in Matthew 21, Matthew 21 and verse 1. It says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage. I think that it is important to call attention. If you're looking at your Bible, you will notice that what precedes this, there is the context. What leads up to this is the account of Jesus healing two blind men in Jericho. One who is singled out, we know blind Bartimaeus. And that is the lead-in for this triumphal entry. And also of special interest, if you let your eyes roll up there just into the last part of chapter 20, that you will see that they say, Lord, we want our eyes opened. And they regained their sight. And then... It says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem. And now I'm going to come down to the end of this section, which goes down through verse 11. And when they entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Actually, what we need to note here is that Jesus was deliberately provoking the situation. He was not just coming upon What was a surprise to him? Not at all. And further it says, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. That's not wrong, but that's not the whole story. Keep that in mind. All right, now, we're going to skip over Mark. We're going to come back to it. So go over to Luke's account. Luke's account. 
Now, it's a long account, and I'm, I'm not going to read it, but uh, I will point out some things, and you'll see how I will, the portions I choose to read. It's Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. Now, Luke has his own particular emphasis on this well-known account of the entrance of Jesus on Palm Sunday. His emphasis is on the movement of Jesus to be rejected. And, you know, actually, if you to read the whole account, you would notice that Luke doesn't tell us of Jesus' actual entry into Jerusalem. <laughs> we have that in the other three Gospels, but not here. So, and when he, now I'm at verse uh, 28, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, uh, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied. Just uh, an unridden kind of a baby donkey on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And then what I think is a prearranged password for it says, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. It's all that was necessary. And they found it just as he had told them. I will point out later how those kinds of statements are very significant to the story of the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. Now, if you will, just roll on with me. Let your eyes come on down and look at verse 37. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now, let me pause and give you. There was the crowd that came with Jesus down the descent, descending down the Mount of Olives. It sits across the uh, the plain or the, the valley, the Kedron Valley. And let me, may I look behind me? Thank you. This is rude, but I have to do it right. That when you were looking, what you're looking at there is the modern city. So you've got to do some uh, moving around of the props, that wall and that gold dome, which is a mosque. Obviously, we're not there in the first century, but it is where this picture from the place from which this picture is taken. It is looking down from the Mount of Olives over to the city. And Jesus has this vast crowd with him that are going. Now, just a little further notice here of, of circumstances. Jesus has as I said, heal the two blind men in Jericho. Jericho is 18 miles down behind where, if we're taking the picture behind us, and it's a steep climb. Beth and I have walked part of that climb down, (laughs) and I can guarantee you it's work. Jesus walked that, so it would be like moving, walking from here to over on the other side of Peachtree City. 
That's the walk that he has already taken. And then he comes up to these little the little villages, about a mile, mile and a half, over on the southeastern side of the Mount of Olives. And he's going to crest it and come down with the crowds. And then saying, this is what they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. These words from Psalm 118 and verse 26 are very important in that they're part of a montage of verses that are taken from Psalm 118. I was toying with the idea right up until I left my seat this morning of should I take us to Psalm 118? And I said to myself, you're going to have a hard enough time getting through with this on time as it is. So don't, I will just tell you this, that Psalm 118 is part of a series of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 113 to 118. And these were psalms that were sung by pilgrims who came to Jerusalem for those three occasions during the year to celebrate great festivals. And thousands of people would have converged from all parts of the nation of Israel. And they would sing those songs as they were coming up to the temple and rejoicing as they sang. And Psalm 18 is the climactic of those of, of those ascent psalms. And it was on Jesus' lips more than three, four times in this Passion Week. So it was very much a part of his soul. All right. Back with me? Let's go further. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Talking rocks. What is this? All history pointed to this moment. Whatever mankind likes to pride itself upon in its achievements and its great peoples and empires and the movement of history, this is that which sits supreme over anything human beings can contrive and the way human beings would like to interpret history, God Almighty said, this is the moment in history that you need to take note of. And I should add this, that from verse 38 down through verse 44 here in Luke, this is only in Luke. You won't find it in Matthew's account, Mark's account, or John's account. Doug, we'd better read it, all right? You still with me? I know you're thinking, is he ever going to get into the passage? We will. (laughs) Stay with me. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Oh, Jerusalem, Salim. The very word means peace, Jerusalem, the city of peace. Oh, if you only knew. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Why is he weeping? Jesus has certainly at least prescience here. Omniscience, knowing all things. Prescience, seeing things beforehand. And in this occasion, 
He knew he was sensitive to the spiritual blindness that marked the whole event. No one was really seeing it for what it was and who he was. And he saw what was coming on the city in about uh, 40 years, around 70 A.D., and how there would be this catastrophe as the Roman legions would come in against the city and hundreds of thousands would be slain in the streets. Oh, he saw that. He saw those dark clouds of coming judgment hanging over the city. And I continue. And tear, he says, tear down the city and tear down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's actually anticipating two great, two great events. The judgment that would come upon the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And one day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to earth and he will, his feet will touch upon the Mount of Olives and he will make his grand entrance into that city as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That was in the future as well. Momentous event. Still with me? And we go back, we go to John. Let's go to John's account. Really brief. Justin will get you here. I don't know when. He'll get you there. (laughs) He knows. Now, what we are noticing is the next day, the large crowd that had come. This is John 12 in verse 12. John 12, 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, there is something that's in the context here that's interesting. It's focused, the, the hostility of the leaders, the religious establishment, They were plotting. I get this. This is really perverted. They were plotting in addition to killing Jesus. They wanted to kill Lazarus. For this was fresh in the minds of all the people and and contributed to the fact that so many were flocking with joyous celebration. Did you hear about Lazarus? He'd been dead. And he was brought from the grave. And people saw him. We'll tell you his address if you want to go meet him. (laughs) And so they were plotting to kill Lazarus because they considered him to be an accessory to the crime. And what was the crime? That announcement that Jesus Christ made of himself and presenting himself as Israel's Messiah. So they came, the crowd, and they so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Now in I bordered on giving you one of those uh, DVD accounts of this. And then when I read this and the magnitude of it was just just weighing on my mind, and then I watched it, and I mean, it's a good good presentation, the DVD of Jesus. It looked kind of Sunday schoolish, so I said, okay, just get this in mind. We're not talking about small crowds here. It's estimated that the city of Jerusalem at that time within the walls could accommodate about 150,000 people. So guests and pilgrims who would have come in. But we know from uh, records from outside the Bible, we know historical records that about 10 years later that there were at least 250,000 sacrifices that were brought 
uh, to into the tabernacle area, uh, temple area. Can you imagine what this was like? People bringing in the, the animals and the, the hustle and the bustle of the crowds. And then we know about the money changers in the, in the commons area around the temple. It was a densely, I mean, there may have been, could easily have been a million or two people in that, in that area. Enormous crowds. Palm trees. What were they doing? These were symbols of victory. This was uh, significant in Israel. They didn't wave flags. They waved these and threw them out and threw the robes out for Jesus to take the donkey upon these and to come into the city and threw robes on the back of the donkey, the colt on which Jesus sat, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Now, we are introduced to another text from the Old Testament. It does help to know the Old Testament. Zechariah 9.9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. I can take just a few seconds to tell you about this, this little uh, kind of a, it's a, it's a part of the uh, larger episode. But in Zechariah 9, there is an extended section, and it's pre- uh, anticipating the coming of the Prince of Peace. When you go down to verse uh, 9 and verse 10, and preceding it, preceding that in Zechariah 9, 1 through 8, is a, an account of another king coming into a city who just astounds people, and you would know him, maybe you would know him, Alexander the Great, coming in in regality on his famous horse, Bucephalus. And oh, Alexander, there are famous carvings of Alexander, for example, coming into the city of Babylon when he conquered it. And so you read that, and if you have any any um, thoughts of how magnificent that scene would have been and Alexander and all the pomp and circumstance, and then you come down to Zechariah 9.9. And the, not the prince of war, but here's the prince of peace coming into the city on the back of a donkey. A little anticlimactic, isn't it? Maybe. But then in verse 10 of Zechariah 9, it describes in 19 words, 19 words in the Hebrew text, describing that which the king of kings will we'll do what he will do when he consummates his plan in bringing his kingdom and when he judges the nations. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called out Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him. See, now there's a crowd coming out of the city to meet him. And then with this, uh, with these two large crowds converging and celebrating so that the reason why the crowds went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. What? Of raising Lazarus. It was just so full of meaning. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They were jealous and they were angry. 
the religious establishment. And now in Mark's account, and I'm going to just read it without too much comment here. Now when they drew, this is Mark 11 and verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a cold tide on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them that Jesus, so what Jesus had said, and they, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the ground, on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Do you have the scene? Hopefully some grasp of it. Let's pray. Let's, then we'll look at it and see what the Spirit of God instructs us through this, how he instructs us. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets at various times in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he's the radiance of his glory, in the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Thank you, our Heavenly Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we take great comfort that we, as we think that your angels early this morning escorted David Huther into your presence. Oh, Lord, thank you for your grace to us that that can be because of what you became and judged and judged for our sin in our place. Oh, Lord, thank you, thank you. Open our eyes, Lord, now to see wonderful things from your law. In Christ's name, amen. Watch the way it unfolds. I'm going to highlight two movements in the story And then I want to come to some very important conclusions. Follow with me. For those who may be guests today, we have a a little tradition of sorts, a little habit that we have these outlines, these handouts. And so it helps to kind of get connected with the text if you wish to fill them in, but it's not necessary. You will see it come through on the screen. A couple of things we need to note just briefly. 
the clouds of the death of the servant of God were gathering over the city of Jerusalem. Why do we call him the servant? Because the key text in Mark is the Mark 10 and 45. The, ser- the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It's the servant of God spoken of in Isaiah in explicit ways. So this servant, the suffering servant, the good shepherd, was soon to lay down his life for the sheep. The Sanhedrin's plotting for his death. And in just a few days, Judas is going to carry out his act of betrayal. This triumphal entry of Jesus in Jerusalem, it's an interesting contrast between appearance and reality. You get that? Between appearance and reality. Jesus is coming to the time of his death. He's Israel's king. The prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament. And hardly anyone seems to know this. So you look at it, you say, wow, that all of that disfavor into which Jesus had fallen. Oh, the popularity now is peaking. Yes, this is the moment. I don't doubt that the disciples thought that, yes, now we're going to stick it to Rome. I mean, any man that can raise the dead, give sight to the blind and heal the lepers and feed the thousands and walk on water, and for several of the disciples to be transfigured marvelously before their eyes with light that was overwhelming. Yes, he's our man. He can do it. Stick it to Rome. Stick it to him. That's what Israel wanted. There was no love lost. Part of the Jews were Rome and their domination. Oh, now, let's come back to the story. What you have noted, what you would want to notice, is that this servant of God was Israel's true king. That comes through in verses 1 to 6. The cult and all that's involved with the account that we saw the details. There's a word that you, I think, is helpful to get a handle on why the attention to this donkey, the mama, and her colt. Now, ordinarily, you know, the colt could have been a little bit you know, what would we call it? Separation anxiety? It goes on downstairs <laughs> in, the, in the human world. And uh, But the mama being there would have kept the cold calm. Oh, you can imagine why that would have been necessary. You got hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people shouting. And, I mean, you could just see that this, this donkey could have easily become flustered and go off this way and go off that way. But just on cruise control and just comes with those little stutter steps. I've, I've seen people ride on the backs of those donkeys through the streets of Jerusalem. It's almost kind of comical to watch. Those little donkeys just, just go just like that. And they got this great burden on their back, but they can do it. And here comes Jesus. Here he comes. Here he comes. And so Mark is wanting to focus upon the precision. That's the word. The precision of the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. This was not happenstance. This was all prearranged, planned. And so Mark, though he doesn't mention Zechariah 9.9, Matthew does. 
And here is Jesus coming into the city, actually not a triumphal entry. That is a bit of a misnomer, but we kind of have to go with it because what were you going around saying? We're going to celebrate the untriumphal entry this Sunday. You think, what church do you go to? Uh, that it is really a misnomer because what Jesus was doing was bringing himself into the city. It was a very sacred moment. That animal, that donkey upon which no one had ridden, that was significant in itself. And all of this had been laid out for this is a kind of a coronation. So here is this colt. The colt upon which Jesus rode reveals the nature of his kingship. Get this. Get this. What is there in this coming into the city on the back of a donkey? Now, it's true that some kings did come into a moment of celebration and coronation on a donkey. I can give you an Old Testament example. Remember when David was on his deathbed and his son Adonijah was conniving? He was trying to work around all kind of chicanery to get himself as to be uh, the, the next king. And it was to have been Solomon. Well, uh, Bathsheba found out, and she got word, and things got to rolling in the other direction. And so they got Solomon, who was the king to be, the successor to the throne. And then they saddle up or set up this donkey, and he rides into the city. He comes in to present himself as the coronated king. And that was bad news for Adonijah. That's another story. But here it is comes into the city, comes into the city. The the suffering servant is in full control of all events. See, that's the sense that you want to have from this. He's in full control. And he's presenting himself as the one who's going to crush the head of Satan. Yes. And that it was necessary for him to serve sinners by giving his life as a ransom for many. He's coming in as a servant, the servant king. And the, the, the cult would serve him by remaining calm in the midst of all this excitement so as the king could be presented without any distraction and just in the right way at the right moment and Jesus fulfilling scripture, presenting himself. Here is your Messiah. Ta-da! All right, let's take the second movement and notice it in verses 7 to 10. Israel's king, that's who's coming in, was acclaimed by the crowds with flawed praise. Ah, we've got to to break this down a bit. Let's do a little analysis of what it looked like in the souls of those who were singing. Jesus was presenting himself as the Prince of Peace. It was, if you will, a ticker tape parade. The crowds were coming with Jesus from Jericho. They followed him up. There were those who were rushing out of the city to meet him. It was a spontaneous expression of praise to Jesus. Spreading out their garments. It was jubilation, excitement. He had raised Lazarus. But was it messianic? Was it really, were they really plugged in? You know how crowds are. Crowds are really fickle things. And we've all participated in them. And we can even maybe think back to some crowd participation moments and we thought, I did that. 
Or I carried on like that. You know, it's just kind of, it's not necessarily bad. You know, you're at a game or a basketball game or something, and you just, I'm, I was watching the faces of people in the crowds as one team went down to defeat, not used to being defeated. They were crying. And then you, the camera panned on others, and they were, oh, <laughs> this is the greatest thing in the world. Crowds do things to us, being a part of them. So what do we say of this crowd here? That Jesus has come to offer something that the crowd doesn't understand. Jesus is coming to offer salvation, not rebellion. He is not leading a revolution. No, 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 no. He's coming to offer salvation. All right, let's advance on that. The crowd praised him by means of Psalm 118, 25, and 26. I need not comment further on that since we did a little preview of it. But I can tell you this, that taking that psalm was very significant, and I think they kind of stumbled into it because it's very densely and intensely messianic, and it's anticipating even the coming kingdom. And so here they were with the words of Psalm 118 on their lips, and he who comes, that's a messianic title in itself, at least had enormous implications. And so the crowds wanted the Davidic kingdom, but not, get this, the crowds wanted the Davidic kingdom, but not the suffering servant. That was a, uh, a boo moment for the crowds, as it would be, as Justin indicated earlier, that where then they would be in a few days, what, crucify him, crucify him. Wait a minute, this same crowd? I told you crowds are fickle. <laughs> there they are. And the crowds... That day, I would say they were curious. And Jesus was a very controversial person. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. Many were drawn to him by his name, his reputation, what they thought he was, not necessarily because of who he was. You remember Jesus asked his own disciples, who do men say that I am? Remember he said, hey, Jeremiah, uh, one of the prophets. Have you thought of this? Jesus lived his entire life always underestimated by people. <laughs> always. I mean, we tend to kind of romanticize the story and think, whoa, this was just fantastic uh, there for all to see who he was. No. So the crowds were impressed with what Jesus had done. He had performed a sign, and this drew him to him. John 12 and 11 says, On account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So some did believe us. Ah, oh, God's sovereign grace. He can come right into the foolishness of man in the midst of a joyous crowd, missing the point, but yet being able to bring together the necessary truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they believed on it. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? God can do the most surprising things. And so the crowd. But the crowd, generally, they were thinking of politics. That's where they were. There's the scene. Now let's conclude. Let's conclude. I think these three issues emerge. And I'm still conscious of that question. Who is this king? Who is this king? 
I respond. First of all, the crowds didn't understand him. The disciples were ignorant. The religious leaders were angry. And Jesus was in tears. Oh, the tragedy of unbelief. Now, there are different kinds of unbelief on the scene. Now, let's be clear. First of all, you had the crowds. I call that the unbelief of longings for prosperity. See, they had their own view of Christ. That's the problem. It's the person in whom you place your faith. They did. They were placing their faith. And what they saw was one who would give them prosperity. Yes, you will give us, you will give us that that political experience that we want where we're free as people. We have prophecy, uh, or prosperity, prophecy being fulfilled. It was kind of popular skepticism. Wanting to use Jesus to get what they could out of him. Not so much interested in the real reason for which he had come. Then the, the unbelief of the disciples was the unbelief of self-created blind spots. Now these were believers. The disciples had these blind spots. They couldn't get it. They didn't get it. They were, con- that they were confused. They had false expectations. I think they simply <clears throat> got caught up in the cultural frenzy that of expecting a Messiah who would come at that time to deliver them from the stranglehold of Rome and would give them this political solution to their problems. And I think there was an element of that in the disciples who were believers who get caught up in that. And I can tell you, Christians can get caught up in the stuff that the world is very much committed to, can't we? For you know it. We get seduced. The disciples were surprised by suffering. That's an interesting thing. Surprised by suffering. I thought that when you come to Christ, he is going to give you all of this and himself too. The popular presentation of Jesus today. It's like he's sort of the, the cherry on top of the whipped cream. Life is good for you Americans. You've got it pretty good. And Jesus can come and really make it very special for you. And Jesus comes and says he's the suffering servant who came to bear our sins in his body on the tree and punished in our place. And there must be coming to him faith in receiving the gift of eternal life and he alone can give it in forgiveness of sin. And so, but the disciples, their unbelief, self-created blind spots, we have them, we have them. We can't take the time to milk that, but we don't see things. Our culture influences us. I will say this. I tread lightly, but I don't tread so lightly here. If you will hear me out, there's a lot of frenzy this year because I understand there is a big event coming up in November. Is this not true? We have this every four years. And what we're seeing unfold, again, I've been through many of these, many of these. And now I see something that is really, comparatively speaking, I want to say odd. It's more than odd. It's really a little bit unsettling. The degree to which people, even Christian people, want to put all their eggs of hope into the basket of a political savior, whoever it may be, and how easy it is to slip into politics and to make that the domain of the kingdom and of meaning in life, so-called politics of mean. Politics won't give you meaning. Only Jesus Christ can do that. 
Only he can. Only he can. Ah, it's not on, it wasn't on the front page this morning, by the way. Then they have the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders, the unbelief of false teaching. They were corrupted. They were corrupted, for sure. Because they had substituted a false gospel in the play real gospel. Ah, oh, now this is lethal. See, the crowd, some people believed. The disciples were believers. They just confused. But when you believe a false gospel, you are in deep weeds. And you take a false gospel and embrace it. And your whole worldview is contrary to that which God has revealed in his word. So here comes Jesus then, underestimated throughout his entire life, and saying, who then is this king? I conclude with two brief statements, two others. The crown rights of God's servant did not satisfy the expectations of the spiritually blind. I'll leave it at that. I've commented to it. But the people weren't satisfied. And the fact that Jesus was riding on a donkey and all of the, all of the truth rich, um, symbolism of that moment, what they were saying from Psalm 118, the donkey, all of it was lost on them. Lost on them. Just went right by them. And it was incidental, you see, to their expectations. All people are willing to use Christ. People are willing even to use Christians, the world is, to achieve their goals politically. And I conclude with this. The crown rights of God's servant had to be purchased through the suffering of his atoning sacrifice. And the answer to the human problem is the defeat of sin and death. How? By his atoning sacrifice. And it is not, the answer to the human problem is not through political triumphalism. Don't drink that Kool-Aid. I'm not saying be a pacifist and being an escapist and not involved. That's not holy. I'm just saying that we ought to be gospel people. We ought to take it up a gear. Gospel people. To proclaim this gospel. What is this gospel? God came to this earth in this perfect human being, Jesus Christ. And a God who was infinitely perfect and righteous in all his ways in one person. Never fully understood. And then, and then, took the full weight of the, of the the claim of the declaration of the law that you break it, you suffer. And Jesus didn't break it, he kept it. And he was punished in our place. God blistered him with his wrath. And that's why Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that deeply emotional moment, but certainly understood and fathomed by the Son of God hanging on that cross, he was bearing our sins in his body on that tree. There is no other way into God's presence. See, we're not perfect human beings. That's what it takes to go and to be in the presence of God. He's a perfect God. How can we ever get into God's presence in the condition we're in? It is because we can receive that perfection, if you will, in what is called righteousness, Christ's righteousness. And he puts that on our account. It is a transaction. We receive it by faith. Thank you, Lord. I receive that. 
what you've done. That righteousness, it's not in me, it's in Christ. And thank you, Lord. Thank you, I receive it, I believe. Oh, Lord, for if you, thank you for your forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And I'm yours. I say to you, I say to you without any hesitation, that I would know that our dear brother Dave, Huther, uh, he startles himself in the middle of the night. Am I still here? <laughs> Why would anyone say that? It was not, he was not sedated. He was ready to go into the presence of the Lord. And what his eyes have seen. Alma had a little bit of an experience with what your eyes can see. She told us this morning, she said she'd been in that hospital room. What are they? Grays and, and white sheets and walls. You know, institution. And she said she walked out. She hadn't been out in days. And she was just overwhelmed the burst of colors. Oh, azaleas and dogwoods and red buds. all over the place. I thought, what God gave to Alma was just a little preview of that when the believer dies and the angels escort us into the presence of Christ, what these new eyes will see and what we will behold in his presence. My dear friend, my dear friend, please do you understand there is a way into the presence of God at death and that is through faith in Christ alone. Could we bow our heads, please? Could we bow our heads, close our eyes? Would you like to put your trust in Christ this morning? It's possible. You can. Just acknowledge yourself to God. Acknowledge. God, I know I'm a sinner. And there's nothing that I can do to save myself. I confess my complete helplessness to forgive my own sin or to work my way to heaven. And I thank you, Lord, that Christ alone died in my, he died in my place. And I believe that he did, that all that he did, whatever was, it was necessary for me, he did what was necessary for me to stand in your presence, Father. Now, if you would like to say, with the hand of the heart and faith, Lord, I believe, I rely, I trust, I receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, God, our Savior, in Christ, who is the ruler supreme, who will come and rule, thank you for your salvation and the extraordinary hope that we have to whom we then can give all glory and laud and honor and praise.